welcome to the VBAC Home Birth Stories podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Winning. I'm a home birth, free birth guide, fear and mindset coach, podcaster, speaker, women's rights activist, and highly sensitive person. I'm a mother of three girls, and I've had two unplanned and unneeded C-sections with a special scar. I birthed our third 4.5 kilo baby at home in a free birth after not being able to access a home birth midwife. My own journey has sparked a deep passion to support women to find their strength and courage to create the pregnancy, birth and postpartum you desire and deserve. This podcast is for women wanting to learn more about VBATs, especially home births, and professionals who want to learn more about how to support VBAC women and families. I hope you enjoy this podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode. Today I've got amazing Cara with us and I'm really excited to hear Cara's story because it's a little bit different to some of the stories that we hear. Cara had planned a birth center birth and then ended up having a accidental or surprise. So <laughs> I'm really excited to hear your story, but welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Ashley. I'm so excited to be here. Welcome. Please let us know a little bit about yourself. Sure. So my name's Cara. I'm a little bit of an older mother. I had my first baby when I was 35. I've got Lily, who's now just over three and a half, and I've got Solomon, who is just over one. So you've got your hands full with two little ones in the I midst do. of it. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> How are you going? Good. I think, as we'll probably talk about, my postpartum with my second baby was a lot. I think I was just more informed and a bit more aware of what I wanted it to look like. So. Yeah, it's been a lot smoother and, yeah, it's a bit sad because it's my, he's my last baby, but, yeah, it's been a journey. <laughs> yeah. Well, let us know how you started with your conception journey and your pregnancy and then we'll go into the first birth. Sure. So we are a same-sex family, so we did IVF. We were pretty lucky. Um, the first embryo that we implanted, unfortunately, we lost that baby at six weeks, so that was pretty traumatising at the time. And then we were very fortunate to have Lily, the second. Oh, sorry, hang on. The first one didn't work. The second one was the one that we lost and Lily was the third. So when you say it didn't work, for anyone who doesn't understand the concept or hasn't been through the journey that you've been through, when you say Mm -hmm. it didn't work, does that mean it doesn't take? Yeah, when we did a pregnancy test after the two-week wait, it just yeah didn't take. That embryo just wasn't didn't turn out to be a baby, yeah. And then your second one, you went through and it implanted itself and then you had a yeah. miscarriage around six weeks. Yeah, yeah. And then, so I just got some symptoms and realised that, that was what was happening, yeah. And then you went through and then you were successful with your third baby, which is named Lily, is she? That's Lily, yes. Yeah, yeah beautiful yeah, name. Out. Big girl. <laughs> Thank yeah. you. And that's a, was that a quite costly process to go through? How was that it process was. of all of that? Yes, it was. Yeah. So I was working in a job where I could, you know, come up with the money there, but I'm not doing that job anymore. But yeah, so we were just in a position where we could do it. I mean, it wasn't, you know, probably what we would like to have done with the money, but we were fortunate at the time that we were able to do it. And also we were living in Central Australia at the time, so we travelled to Adelaide. So we had a lot of some travel to do as well, which threw a little bit of extra stress into the mix. But we just really wanted to start our family, so we pretty much did whatever we had to do. Okay. So when you were pregnant, were you were you planning to have your baby in Central Australia or is that when you kind of moved? Yeah, so we had Lily was born in an Alice Springs hospital. And we, I don't know if you want me to start with, you know, the story with Lily, but we were very fortunate to get into the MGP program in Alice Springs. Mm, Absolutely. I want to hear all about Lily and all about that experience (laughs) style because you were a first time mom, you're going Mm -hmm. through that whole journey. So what were your expectations for that pregnancy and that birth? And how did you also negotiate and navigate as a same sex couple who was Mm -hmm. going to, you know, be pregnant if you're happy to share those details with us? Sure. So we we were quite lucky in Alice Springs. I'm not sure if this is common knowledge, but there seems to be quite a lot of same-sex couples that are women. Okay, um, no, a a definitely not it. common knowledge, yeah. <laughs> there's a bit of a joke about it. So in terms of visibility, it wasn't something we were too worried about. I mean, obviously sometimes you do get a little bit nervous about it, but we didn't run into any discrimination or anything like that. So we were pretty fortunate with regard to that. 
one of my best friends is a midwife, so we were very keen to get into MGP. I had a, a big understanding of what it is and why it can be beneficial. So, uh, yeah, I'm not sure, quite sure if I answered that question. <laughs> yeah, you've let us know that you had a friend who was a midwife, so you were aware of MGP. And then yeah. when it came to who was going to fall pregnant and that sort of thing, how did you come to the conclusion that it was going to be you? Yes, we get this question a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so my partner never wanted to carry a baby. It was just never something that she felt called to do. So that was quite easy for us because I know sometimes it can be hard to decide who goes first or, you know, how things work. So in our relationship, it was always going to be me that was going to be pregnant and, and deliver the babies and birth the babies. And that was something that did you always want to go through that process yourself or was that? I'm an early childhood teacher. So I, I thought for a very long time that I would get that sort of, you know, relationship with children through my work. But then I got to sort of my early to mid thirties and went, oh, I think I do want to have some babies. <laughs> yeah. So it just yeah. kind of happened that way. Yeah. Just the biological clock, I guess. That's so interesting because obviously for somebody who's in a not a same sex, there's no choice. The woman mm-hmm. has to, unless you've got enough money to, you know, a lot of the celebrities do this where they mm. will get a surrogate and they will, you know, pay for somebody else. It's not so common here because it costs a lot of money and women just don't have the choices to be able to do those things. Mm. But having had a very challenging pregnancy myself or all three of my pregnancies with HG, I would say to my husband, if you could take the pain and the sickness for me, would you do it? (laughs) Would you do it? Because this is hell, bro. (laughs) If there was an opportunity to kind of, you know, give it over a little bit, especially with the challenging pregnancy, I've got girlfriends who have had the most beautiful, easygoing pregnancies, you know, love every day of it. But then the Mm -hmm. newborn stage becomes the challenging stage. So Mm. there's pros and cons of everything. But in my experience, I guess the pros, even though the ne- it was such a negative experience for me, mm-hmm. the, you have to go into that mindset of the pros outweigh, you know, any negative. Yeah, totally. And I think with my first birth, it was, so I was, you know, quite a healthy, well, you know, felt well during my pregnancy with Lily. But as we'll talk about, it was the birth that was the challenging part for me and the postpartum. Mm-hmm. So you went through your pregnancy, you got in the MGP, you had a best friend who's a midwife. Mm-hmm. How were you feeling about birth? Were you educated? Was she coaching you, giving you some insight? What was your... I think I probably thought I knew more than I did because of okay. her. Because I you know, lived with her while she was studying to be a midwife and was coming home telling me all kinds of stories about births. And so I thought, oh, I know, I know quite a bit. You probably, probably do, you know, maybe <laughs> yeah. more, a little bit more than the average person. But I just think the experience going through it yourself is just so different to yeah, hearing stories about it. Yeah, which I think is why for me, the second birth I planned it to be quite different. Yeah. So what kind of happened through your pregnancy and leading up to your birth? Yep. So as I said, I was living in, in Central Australia, so it was really, really hot. Lily was due on the 1st of the 1st, 2020. So the last few months of my pregnancy were very hot and all I wanted to do was sit down. (laughs) Plus I was working as an early childhood teacher, so I was on my feet a lot. So I was taking any moment I could to sit down. And I think that probably impacted because when we get to the birth, the position of Lily perhaps wasn't so favourable for the birth. So when you say early childhood teacher, does that mean in child, is that in childcare or is that in a school setting? In a kindergarten, like a four-year-old kindy program. Okay, cool. All right. So when you're sitting down, when you're talking about sitting down, were you like reclining or were you just sitting? I think I was doing too much reclining. (laughs) I'm a recliner myself and I've had all pee babies and that's totally fine for me. I'm happy to do the extra work on the day, but I love to ask women what they're doing. I was an OP baby as well. Ah. And I imagine my mum was probably sitting down a fair bit. She used yeah. to have, be a typewriter, you know, in the old days where they had the typewriters. Yeah. So she used to work for Bird's Eye doing that. And I think uh-huh. she probably just sat on the couch a lot when she, there was a lot of chocolate eating when I was inside. <laughs> <laughs> she put on a lot of weight. Yeah. So it, mm. I just always thought that was quite normal. But now we're in this mm-hmm. culture where people, we talk about spitting babies. Mm. There's a real emphasis on a baby being in a perfect position. It is interesting because it's probably not the same for everybody. And just on what you were saying about your mum, I was a cesarean baby and so was my brother. Wow. Wow. So I had this idea that it's okay to have a cesarean, but I also wanted to see if I could do it you know, the vaginal way. Yeah. yeah. So 
did you go in thinking that you were going to have a vaginal birth and how was the conversations in the hospital with the midwives what were you low oh, risk really and, positive yeah. yeah low risk even though I was probably I think I was considered what do they call the older mums oh, there's a word they use geriatric that's the one (laughs) so I was considered that but I was also I guess fairly well and healthy in the eyes of the medical world so there was no concerns we thought yep we'll just wait for spontaneous labor to begin and hope that we can have the birth that I was wanting but yeah it didn't actually quite work out that way how old were you when you were pregnant with Lily I think I was 35 okay they start that geriatric thing pretty early, don't they? 35. They do. Yeah, I think that's the, the when I think they say 35 and over. That's when, yeah. that's when your class is geriatric. <laughs> I remember Bridget Jones is, I don't know if you saw the recent Bridget Jones. Oh, yeah. She gets pregnant at 40 and she's a geriatric or however old she is. And I remember at first being a thing like, I'm a geriatric house. Oh, my goodness. And now it's just, you know, and so many women are having their first babies at 35 years old these totally. days. Totally. Yeah, and exactly. To be put in that category already is, you know, it's a lot, isn't mm-hmm. it? Yeah. I just ignored it. Went, I'll be right. <laughs> yeah. Because you were healthy, you were fit, you know, you felt good. You had an easygoing yeah. Too birth. Too much sitting you? down, but. Did you have an easygoing birth? <laughs> I just wanted to touch on too, sorry, I um did, I did the, the diabetes test, the gestational diabetes test with Lily, just talking about the different health, medical things that they look for, and that word, that came back as I, that I didn't have it. It comes up later when I'm pregnant with Solomon, so I just thought I'd mention that. Yeah, okay. Sorry, what was your question, Ashley? <laughs> uh, I can't remember. <laughs> uh, it was about the birth, was it? I can't remember. I literally don't remember. It's okay. No, it's good <laughs> to know that you basically declined the GD test, did you? Oh, no, you went through the GD class and it came back and you didn't have GD. So that's good mm-hmm. to know for your next one. Yeah. So did you have spontaneous labour? Yes, I did have spontaneous labour with Lily. I think it was just before about a week before my due date. I think it was. Yes, but it was very stop-start, and now that I know a little bit more about it, I think I understand why. So the contractions weren't regular, but because it was my first birth, I thought, this is it, it's happening, we've got to go to the mm. hospital. <laughs> my midwife wasn't available because it was NGPI, you know, it had the one-on-one. But something happened where she wasn't there. It was around Christmas time, so I think there was a bit of a staffing issue going on. And she was around, but she, I think she'd maxed out her hours or something at that time. So I had a midwife that was just on the ward and she couldn't even find my cervix. So I was not ready to go. She couldn't even locate it. So yeah, I think it was just the very, very beginning, but I had no idea that that was the case. (laughs) Were they sort of happening mostly at nighttime and teetering off during the day or was it just you getting them sparingly? This happened at nighttime and it was like, it was painful through the night, but I think probably what was happening is she was trying to turn around. Mm. That was the Predominal labour, it sounds like you were having predominal labour, which is mm. I've never had it before, but it sounds very cruel. You know, my clients who have had it or when I interview women on the podcast, they can go for weeks, days or weeks with this experience mm-hmm. and, you know, being awake all night and then the daytime comes and nothing happens and it can be really, you think you're in labour and you're doing all this work and your body's doing all this work. And it is doing something, like you said, probably getting the baby into a better position to make it I did have it with Solomon, so I will talk about that as well. Mm. Um, That kind of went for weeks as well. So you went into the hospital with prodromal labour. They identified Mm -hmm. that your cervix was, you know, up hard, high and hard probably, couldn't even see it. So then Mm -hmm. what kind of happened then? Did they send you home? They sent me home. They said, you know, things, you know, become more painful or more regular, let us know. I think I was 39 and two. And then I think I went in the next day. So hard to remember. Isn't it funny how it's so hard to remember? I have some notes, but not really in detail. So I think it was the next day, maybe in the afternoon or something, we went in. And I think I was like one centimeter or something. So we were getting there, but we weren't really getting there. And this is kind of when the cascade of intervention began. So were you up another night with more contractions or more prodromal labor yeah I think I think it started then we went in the next morning that's when they told me that I couldn't find my cervix that sent me home and then I think it went on again but I don't think it was a whole another night I think it just went on all day and then it was maybe the afternoon on that set back the second day that I went back to the hospital and also because my partner and my mum probably are both a little bit of anxious people so in terms of my support team I probably didn't have 
you know, they were like, we need to go to the hospital. It's happening. But but looking back, perhaps it wasn't really happening, but we were all panicking a little bit. (laughs) Okay. So you guys were kind of in the the feeling that you needed to get to the hospital because you were in labor and you needed support. Yeah. And it was painful, you know, as, as birth is, I think I, you know, when I was having a contraction, it was really painful. And so, you know, my support team were freaking out. They were wanting to support me. And so they didn't really know what to do. So let's go to the hospital. They'll know what to do. (laughs) Yeah. Did you consider calling your bestie or having a chat with your bestie or getting? I did. I had, I spoke to her, you know, on and off through the whole thing. And um, yeah, she was like, make the call. The other thing was we were living, we were only living about a 15 minute drive out of from Alice Springs Airport at that time. But because we had to drive, it was kind of like in a country area. It, it seemed like if we don't go now, it's, you know, so far away or something. It was just this weird feeling that I had that, you know, it, we were going to take so long to get to the hospital, which is so yeah. silly. It wasn't even that far. But And also we were kind of in a rural area, so it just felt like we were a bit more remote and if we had an emergency or the baby just suddenly decided to come out, yeah. which it wasn't going to happen that way. But you have this kind of feeling in your mind that like, what if it happens and I don't know what to do? Yeah. yeah. I understand that feeling because with my second baby, I, as soon as I went into labor, I was like calling the hospital. Yeah. <laughs> I funny. had a plan that I was staying home until the baby was like almost out. And then as soon as I went into labor, the adrenaline spiked yeah. and I was shaking and I was like, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. Like I'm going to mm. give birth like straight away immediately I thought it was going to happen and mm-hmm. so within a matter of a couple of hours of calling the hospital a couple of times I was racing down to the hospital it's just yep. that feeling because you've never been through it you're not prepared and if you don't mm-hmm. have the right support with you mm-hmm. then how would you know any different so I can completely yep. relate to that feeling exactly and that's that thing you know I think they talk now about you know the type of brain that we're using when we're in in having our births we're not really able to think logically (laughs) yeah and if you do think logically you're coming out of the brain space that you need to be in and you're going into your thinking mode which is the space that you're not supposed to be in so it's a two-sided sword isn't it exactly I'm the kind of person that uh, you know I'm thinking about what my how my support team are feeling instead of thinking about how I'm feeling I'm thinking oh they're feeling anxious so something must be wrong and you know that's not really the ideal situation you want to be in no, and when we're vulnerable in pregnant in uh, birth, we are more susceptible to reading other people and seeing what other people are thinking and feeling because we're looking for signs of danger. And so they're giving signs of this is not okay, this is not safe, we need to go. So that's probably what you would have been picking up on as well. So, yes, and I think those hormones probably impacted on how things flowed from there. So you're headed into the hospital again and... Yeah. How did it all, what kind of happened? You said a cascade of interventions kind of happened. Yeah, so I'd actually, I didn't mention earlier, so I'd actually been vomiting a little bit. So I tend to just be a bit of a vomiter when I, you know, when I get sick or, you know, anything that might trigger me. So I had been vomiting quite a lot at home. So they wanted to check my, if I was dehydrated when I arrived and I was. So there was two midwives that I didn't know. I think they gave me some fluid in a, what's it called, in the cannula? Yeah, some like saline or something. Yeah, I think they've given me some. Intravenously. Yeah, Yeah. so they gave me that. So I was having that. I was using the TENS machine. So I didn't want to have, you know, I wanted to try not to have any pain relief, but that went out the window because I'd already been, you know, contracting for quite a number of hours by the time we started intervening. So Mm -hmm. I had gas and air. I had, I think what happened was I arrived at the hospital they realised I was dehydrated. Then the midwife there, she had nearly maxed out her hours. So I kind of, looking back now, I feel like quite sad that, you know, I was pregnant and birthing, but I had to fit in with the schedule of the hospital. Mm-hmm. So the midwife that was there who was in working in place of mine who couldn't be there was, you know, almost couldn't be there either. So they um, said, here, you can maybe take some pain relief, go and have a lie down. Gave me, I think, an endone, which I vomited it up. <laughs> I think they, they must have tried to give me another one or something. They tried to give me some food, but I, because I was vomiting, I, it wasn't really happening. I went and had a lay down so that the, the midwife could go home and have a shower and a rest, which just sounds quite funny when I I've say that. I've never heard of something having endone either. Yeah. <laughs> I was, everything went out the window. I just went, okay, 
And they said, have an endo and go and lie down. And then my support team went home for a rest as well. So I was all by myself in a hospital bed, trying to have a rest, having contractions. And then when I stood up eventually, I don't know whether I had to go to the toilet or something, a little bit of a trickle came out. So was the endo taking away some of the pain for you as well? I'm interested to know. I think it helped me relax to rest maybe a little bit. I don't know if it really took away the pain. Okay. So... Once I stood up and had a little bit of a trickle, I thought, yes, this must be something happening. But I think we think what was happening was it was the four waters. So it was only a trickle. It wasn't really a lot happening yet. So then what happened? Then the midwife came back because we so I had some waters. People, I think, we were like, yes, okay, it's happening. And this is when more interventions started. It, it was, you know, this is happening very slowly. We can break the waters for you. So this is how it really, the intervention really started to escalate from there. And I agreed to them because I didn't, you know, I wasn't thinking, (laughs) you know, in that brain that I, you know, thought I would be. Yeah. And you probably, like for me, when I consented to waters being broken, I thought they were the four waters being broken, but I didn't know the knock-on effect of what could happen after the water's being broken. For me, it was mm. excruciatingly painful. Mm-hmm. Did you have a change in your pain threshold or changes to your pain after they broke your waters? Not that I can remember, but I know the contractions, they did get stronger. But I just wonder if Lily wasn't ready yet and I just wonder if that was the right choice. You know, when I did have the birth mm. trauma after Lily's birth, I, there was a lot of those moments where I thought, oh, I'm getting a bit emotional, moments where I thought, were they the right choice? Yeah. Yeah. I don't talk about it much, so I don't usually get emotional. But yeah. Yeah. There was a lot of things that I just, I wish I had been more informed about or had a support person there who could really help me decide what to do. Yeah. Mm. I understand that. I had a little cry this morning doing (laughs) an Instagram reel talking about my experience as well. And I feel healed from those experiences, but. Mm they still stay with you and it's still okay to grieve and it's still okay Mm. to feel the way that you feel because it could have been different. Yeah. Um, So it's okay to feel those feels. It's good to let it out, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah. I think it's so therapeutic to release. I'm a crier. So you said you don't (laughs) cry very often. I cry every day almost and just release all my energy. So there's no shame for me. I I love it and I um, encourage it for women. Thank you. And I just think it also shows that birth trauma, it doesn't just go away when you have another baby or a better birth or, you know, it's still there. And that's why I feel so passionate about talking about it. Yeah. I just did an Instagram live with Philippa. I can't remember her last name. I just call her Pippa. But we're talking about birth trauma. She's a birth trauma specialist. And we were talking Mm. about all of these things and how Mm -hmm. women plan to have these births to try to heal from the last birth. And if you don't Mm. have the support to be able to work through that, positive birth experience isn't going to you know heal all of that trauma from before and um, I just wish more people more women going into it understood it's not the holy grail of there's still work to be done there's Mm. still time with healing and talk therapy and all that sort of thing Uh so you had your waters broken and then you what kind of happened from that point on then so there was meconium in the waters. So you can see probably how this is going to go if you've had a bit of an understanding of what happens then. So yeah. then it was, we think we need to put a CTG. Oh, no, sorry, we'd already had it. We'd had the one around my tummy. Mm-hmm. I'd consented to that because I was scared. What if something was wrong with Lily? So we were getting inaccurate data. So they couldn't tell if they were reading my heartbeat or the baby's heartbeat. And so they ended up asking if I if they could put the scalp clip on, which I consented to. but. Again, looking back, probably wouldn't have done it if I didn't really need to. That prevented me from moving around a lot. And mm. I think it was around this time they they thought this baby's probably OP. And as many people might know, moving around is often the help, most helpful thing for an OP yeah. baby. So I remember just being on the bed because I was pretty much stuck. It was like I was tethered to the bed. And so, yeah, I didn't, you know, it just, it was, I just, I felt stuck. I felt really stuck. I felt like nothing we were doing was working. And in the end, I I just said, I can't do this anymore. And that's when the conversation about having a cesarean came into it. And I think thinking, talking earlier about our mothers, I think maybe then that's when I subconsciously thought, well, my mum had a cesarean. So that's just what I'm going to have to do. So (laughs) they didn't suggest an epidural or anything like that before? They did. So the obstetrician came in and said, here's your options. 
cesarean, epidural, but I pretty much made up my mind. I'd already been going for, it was like it had gone again overnight. So it was like we'd been going for over two nights. I think my labour ended up, by the time she was born, it ended up being about 52 hours or something. So it was, a, it was going on and on. I was dehydrated. I hadn't eaten. I was exhausted. Yeah, so I ended up consenting to the cesarean at that time. Yeah, and mm-hmm. that was the middle of the night. I think it was about one in the morning or something. Okay, so how did the cesarean go? It was actually a good experience. Yeah, like because I just wanted the pain to stop because I think because she was OP and she either wasn't turning around. My midwife, Bessie, said most of the time they go the long way. Yeah. (laughs) So that's probably what she was doing. Yeah. They said, look, Lily's fine. We're not concerned about her heart rate or anything. You could keep going if you want to, but I just, I was done. I was so done. So once they put in the uh, the spinal, that was smooth sailing because it was just finally after, you know, two and a half days, it was finally I had relief. And the, yeah, it, it was it was fine. You know, it was it's the first time I've had any kind of operation. So it was all new to me. But as far as the, the experience went, it was quite positive. I think you're probably one of the first people that I've spoken. Okay, well, I know a couple of other people who've who've made this choice, who have said mm. no to an epidural and said yes to a C-section. Mm. And so from your point of view, it was, you believe it was because your mother had had C-sections and because you'd been, you were so tired and so it'd been, you were just, let's just go and just get this done and dusted. I don't want to have to deal with this anymore. Is that right? And I was also a little bit concerned about what if I have an epidural and it still goes on for another day or however long, Mm. you know, I was kind of probably catastrophizing a little bit, but I just thought, what if we do the epidural and I still can't do it? I just thought I'm calling it now. I'm just done. And I don't remember thinking about my mum at the time, but I I wonder if there was some little subconscious thought there in the back of my mind, just, you're just going to have to, you're just going to have to do what she did. It might have been a subconsciously normalised thing that you... Yes, exactly. Back in the 80s when I was born, it was that idea of your pelvis is too small for a baby. Um, So I thought, I probably had that thought, like maybe my pelvis is too small. Maybe I'm never going to get her out. hmm. Like my mum couldn't get us out. So I think that was a little bit of a part of it. But, yeah, it's interesting with what you say about the epidural thing because I also, when I look back, I think if I had have just done that, maybe I wouldn't have had a cesarean as well because the recovery was pretty tough. You never know, do you? I went the cesarean, I went epidural route and... Mm -hmm. It ended in a cesarean. I mean, majority of the women that I speak to go the epidural route and they're on this podcast sharing Mm -hmm. their cesarean afterwards. So it's not like a a magic fix. It just, it sounds like you're with really supportive people, to be honest with you. Mm. So Mm. with me, it was like I was only in labour for 12 hours before I had my C-section and they were pushing me after about six hours with nothing wrong with the baby. My goodness. There was no opportunity to give birth vaginally with that baby. If you had a supportive team that were happy for you to go a day or two, perhaps when you're tapped out because you're so tired and you've been through this. And this is the other story that I'd heard where the woman had been gone through similar experiences as you. I can understand why you would just choose that because days of being in pain or I don't know how I would cope in with prodromal labor. And I really hope if I have another baby that I just go <laughs> straight into labor and deal with that rather than like, please don't do that to me. Yeah. <laughs> because it sounds really hard. And I salute any woman who has to go through that, which could be days or weeks, mm-hmm. and then has to go through labor because, you know, challenging. Yeah, I find mine with Solomon really painful, but I'll probably talk about that later. Yeah. So how did you go in postpartum? So you've got your first baby with you, Earthside, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. you've had a cesarean section. How did you feel after that experience and how did everything go? I remember being in the hospital and they would wake me up to breastfeed her and I was just exhausted. I just, I couldn't believe that I'd just been through this epic experience and I was so exhausted and I had to look after a baby. It was just whoa I could not believe it all I wanted to do was rest and sleep but I I had a little human that I had to care for so that was really hard I had a lot of support though I had my mom staying with us my partner was amazing we had some colostrum that I had breast earlier on so that was really helpful we could give a little bit of that to Lily while we're waiting for my milk to come in and it gave my partner a chance to feed her as well and give me a bit of rest 
I have been quite a sporty person in the past. Like I do, I've done a lot of yoga and you know, just going to the gym and stuff in the past before I had kids and had time. <laughs> but I must say the, the cesarean, the pain from the cesarean, whether or not it was because I'd been in such a long labour or the way the cesarean was done, I have no idea. But I found that really hard, just moving around. That's really, really hard. Did that go on for weeks? Was the pain quite painful for you for weeks? Yeah, it just felt like every movement, like, you know, I had to sit up in bed and breastfeed Lily and it was just every time I had to do it, I just, it, it was painful and it went on mm-hmm. for, I would say months. Like I don't think my cesarean completely stopped hurting, I would say almost a year. It was a long wow. time. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't, didn't restrict the way that I went about my daily life. It was there. I could feel it. Mm-hmm. When people talk about it being six weeks, it's like it is not six weeks. unless You're very, very lucky. Yeah, everyone has different experiences and I've heard of women having pain for years to come after their cesareans. It is interesting that everyone has different stories and experiences. Mm. Yeah, and I wonder, you know, if I ever elected to have a cesarean, would that have impacted? Would then the the recovery have been easier? I don't know. I think it's different for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. So what happened with conceiving your next baby and pregnancy? Yeah, so we moved to Queensland by then. (laughs) Okay. And our embryos were actually stored in Adelaide, but we were on the Gold Coast. So we had the exciting adventure of how are we going to get our embryos here? (laughs) And it was around COVID time. So originally we had planned for me to just fly to Adelaide, do an embryo transfer and fly back on my own. But then there was some, when we were planning to go, there were some border closures and things like that. So we went, okay, what else can we do? We paid some more money and we got our embryos transported in their little ice bucket or whatever they're in over to our new fertility clinic on the Gold Coast. So that's how we could start trying to conceive Solomon. Wow. So it was a bit of a journey then. I mean, you travelled. You had a bit of a journey. They travelled, yeah, <laughs> and you met on the so Gold we, Coast. we had two embryos left at this point. So wow. it was pretty much we were not going to do another egg collection. So these were our last two chances. We knew that one of those embryos had taken longer to become an embryo or a blastocyst. So we knew probably that the fourth embryo, which ended up, Pot spoiler, it was Solomon. <laughs> we implanted him and we were super lucky that he became, you know, a viable pregnancy and became him. And we do have the last one, which we've just recently disposed of, which was hard to do. But the embryologist did tell us when we implanted Solomon's embryo that it probably it was it had a very small chance of becoming a baby. So it made that choice wow. a little bit easier. Yeah. So wow. we we're lucky. Solomon was pretty much it. And yeah. I just had this feeling I had to try him. I'm so glad that I did. Oh, that's good. And so you went through that pregnancy and how did that pregnancy go? And you're in a different state this time. So what were your choices going in? Were you thinking of repeat cesarean or VBAC? Well, it's pretty interesting. So after my experience with Lily and having my midwife, Bestie, I was researching VBACs from almost the moment Lily was born. So I did a lot of reading, researching, listening to podcasts, trying to learn as many things as I could about VBACs. And I just had my heart set on it. I would have been okay probably if it didn't go that way, but I was, I wanted to give it my best shot. Yeah. Yeah. So you were determined to have a VBAC? Determined to have a VBAC because my partner and my, our children are um, Indigenous. We connect with the um, Indigenous birth centre on the Gold Coast, which is called Vajangpa Jajams. And we talked about with our midwife there that we really wanted to have a VBAC. She was extremely supportive of that. She did have to follow quite a few policies and things that the hospital wanted her to do. If there was things that I really wanted to decline, she would help us do that. So I did decline any scans after 20 weeks, even though the obstetrician from the hospital wanted us to do that. I just said no. I think it's the policy with VBACs. I think they they want to talk about baby size and things like that when it's a VBAC. That just sounds like a policy of let's talk about induction. Yes. And so I had educated myself about this. So I was like, they're probably going to say this and I'm going to say no. And one of the best things I've learned on this journey, and I've read it in quite a few like Facebook support groups and things is that no is a whole sentence. You don't have to say no because blah, 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 blah. You can just say no, that's it. You don't have to elaborate. It's your body and you can choose to do what, you know, it's not the law, whatever the hospital's policy is, it's not the law. And at the end of the day, medical people, they really have to help you. Like if you just rock up at the hospital and labor, they have to help you whether or not you've done the scans or not. So I feel pretty strongly about that. I hope it doesn't come across too antagonistic, but like 
I just I feel so strongly about it because it it helped me achieve my VBAC. I think that looking back at my experience and hearing other women, they want to educate the staff and get them on board and get them on board with their plans. I didn't know that I could say no in a no is a no sentence. Having a conversation with Rachel, Dr. Rachel Reed after that birth and she just looked at me and said, you don't have to do anything. You can just say no. It's your choice. And I remember looking at her like, are you out of your mind? Like, do you know what I they're know. like in there? <laughs> and now I know to use legal terms like no, I do not consent. Mm-hmm. And I mm-hmm. wouldn't feel like I need to explain myself, but our people pleaser listeners mm. do feel like they need to explain themselves. So I, this is I hear you. for you. If you're mm-hmm. a people pleaser and you feel like mm-hmm. you owe them an explanation, mm-hmm. you don't. And like mm-hmm. over explainers, like me, mm-hmm. I'm an over. I am like that. <laughs> be on my team, be on my side, just trust and believe in me. Do you yeah. think, because it sounds like you had a supportive midwife, like for me, I wasn't able to have that sort of support in the system. And a lot of women can't get that support mm-hmm. if you can't mm-hmm. get into an MGP or as fortunate to go to a birth center it's kind of yeah. a different culture do you feel mm. that really helped you to feel confident in your choices yes and, your- and because it was so the aboriginal birthing center it's like an md it's the same sort of yeah. program as an mgp so we did have the same one and she i had told her about my birth trauma from the previous birth and really explained to her why it meant so much to me to have a back. and i think her support really really helped and the fact that she was willing to kind of go in and bat for us with the obstetricians, yeah. like it would have been awkward for her because she had to go and, you know, have those uncomfortable conversations probably that, you know, the obstetricians were probably like, well, you know, we need to tell her to do this. And she was saying, no, Power doesn't want to do that. You know, I think how I would feel if I was that midwife and I would be so fierce, like fiercely protecting those women. Like it's, mm. I just reflect on my career and what I've done and I've always been for the client. I have, you know, I'd just like storm in there and be like, this is what they want. What can we do? You know, <laughs> come on, come on. What can I do? And it was my yeah. job to like sweeten the deal with this person mm. to get my client across. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if like you had continuity of care, which is a gold standard as well, which is mm-hmm. what we all talk about having that midwife and having that one midwife, having multiple midwives who aren't invested in you isn't the same as like being able to have that birth debrief like you had and have that conversation mm be feel safe and feel seen and so that does add an extra layer of protection mm-hmm. and safetyness and then them mm-hmm. advocating and batting and doing all the hard work so you don't have to have that creepy conversation with the obstetrician who usually storms in at a public hospital and you know mm-hmm. and uh, so and it wasn't have- as easy as I say I should say I'm a people pleaser too a re- reformed or recovering people pleaser ah. <laughs> <laughs> well I'm trying to be So, you know, but when I got the, you know, I think I got a a letter in the mail saying, you know, this is your appointment for your, this went 20 week or whatever it was, 35 week scan. And I, you know, I had that feeling in my gut, like, oh, maybe I have to do this. Mm. And I was like, no, I don't have to do this. Stick to my guns. I don't have to do this. I have to do what I feel is right, or I'm not going to be able to do this feedback. It's just not going to happen. It's good that you share that because at least people can identify and say, even though it's hard, I can still Mm. do this. I can still Mm -hmm. have these conversations. And I think that we over-exaggerate sometimes, catastrophize using your own phrasing, how bad it can be because Mm. we're so afraid of what people are going to think of us. What are they going to say? I'm a mean bitch or I'm a mean person Mm -hmm. and how can I dictate what I want? And so I'm glad that you were able to talk yourself back around and say no. I'm going yep. to stick to my guns and I'm going to do this. And I did have a doula. So I, I started working with her. I actually, I, I had another doula in mind and I'm going to mention this story because it also talks about knowing what's right for you and, and not feeling scared to go for that. So I had this wonderful doula lined up, met her, felt really great about her, had a conversation with her about if she knew any yoga teachers that are nearby so I can try and get this baby in a good position. Mm. So I don't have a repeat of last time. And she recommended me to another yoga teacher who also happened to be a doula. And as soon as I went to this yoga class, I just went, this is my doula. Everything about her felt right. She had experience with body work, massage, pregnancy massage, yoga, being a doula. She's been a doula for a number of years. She's got her own children. She has had postnatal depression herself. So she, she just, to me, she was everything I needed her to be. 
So I had to have this awkward conversation with the first doula and she was wonderful. She said, it's your experience. It's your journey. You know, I, I would have loved to have worked with you, but you have to do what's right for you. So if that happens to anyone, just, yeah, sit with it and just go, how can I still be respectful, but do what's right for me? And yeah, that's also how I had, you know, the conversation with obstetrician wanting me to do the scans. And I would go back to the doula and my bestie midwife and say, I don't have to do this, do I? And they'd say, no, you don't have to do this if you don't want to. Totally your choice. So having that support was had just boosted me up to keep going with what I felt was right or what I wanted to do. I love that so much. I love that you had enough courage inside you to listen to your voice and your intuition, tell you that this person was a better fit for you, and then be able to articulate and tell that person And of course, it was met with love and respect because that's what doulas are supposed to be like. (laughs) They're supposed to be supportive. And, you know, same with midwives. You know, if you don't want them at the birth at the last minute, that's okay. Just communicate and we'll go along with whatever you want because this is your experience. And again, we can catastrophize what can happen. And I'm not saying it doesn't sometimes go pear-shaped because Mm. we're dealing with humans, but probably maybe seven or eight times out of 10, it's probably going to go pretty well. Mm -hmm. So you went along in this pregnancy advocating, you had an awesome team supporting you. And Mm -hmm. what kind of happened from there on? Did you? I did a lot more education. I don't want to fixate too much on the positioning of the baby because I know for some people, you know, I think the jury's kind of out how important or how not important that is. But for me, after my experience with Lily, I felt that it was really, I educated myself about optimal positioning. I was mindful of my more mindful of my body, so not reclining, especially in the last couple of months. Not, I wouldn't say through the whole pregnancy. I did regular prenatal yoga from the start of my second trimester, so twice a week with my doula, who also in her yoga classes, they're like they're called active birth classes, I think she calls them. Mm-hmm. So there's yoga, there's kind of like a woman's circle element to it, and we do some birth prep kind of stuff in the yoga classes. So it was a really kind of holistic kind of wrapped around kind of situation I was in that I'd put myself in because I wanted to have it all kind of I wanted to give it everything I had I wanted to cut kind of you know cross all my t's and and dot all my i's to know that I've given everything I can to to get to Mm. this feedback and to hopefully you know get this this little I knew who was a boy (laughs) so Mm. to get this little boy out out the other way out my vagina (laughs) and my doula was also trained in spinning babies and other modalities that help with positioning and and all that kind of stuff so I also saw a pelvic floor physio at 34 weeks who discovered what I suspected was that I have an overactive pelvic floor which could have also impacted on Lily's position and her ability to turn when she was OP so she released that I don't know if you've had many people talk about that on the podcast or if you'd like me to talk more about it you know what I've heard about fit people or people who are athletes is that they have a very strong pelvic floor mm-hmm. and what they find very difficult is to release the pelvic floor and surrender. Exactly. So mm-hmm. that's what I've heard. So I would love for you to share your experience with that. Yeah. So I'm definitely not an expert, but from my own experience, it, yeah, I have, I've done it. Like I did gymnastics as a child. Oh yeah. Uh, a lot of yoga. So, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Somewhere underneath there are some abs, but I think what the, the kind of downside of that was is that I have this tight pelvic floor because I didn't know how to release it. I only knew how mm. to hold it, you know, the way we're always getting told we need to, but not to how to release it and releasing it is so important in a vaginal birth. So she does go not in your vagina, but it's around, you know, it's not on your tummy or anything. It's, you know, it is between your legs and just releases kind of like when you get a massage and your, you know, the massage therapist might push on a tight shoulder and release it or, or something like that. And it's just, my understanding is it's just releasing those muscles. So I went there, I think it was every week for the last six or so weeks. And I just tried to stay as active as possible as well, which I was a working mum, I had a toddler, but I just even, and I was tired, of course, being pregnant, but mm. I just tried to stay on my feet, not sit down too much because I felt like that was what it impacted on my other birth. It sounds like so, you put yeah. a lot of effort and time into making sure that you were doing all the things for this positioning of baby. Do mm-hmm. you feel that it was overwhelming or too much for you or was it something that was quite easy or 
pretty, pretty um, okay. I, I am. Okay. It's a good question because I do. I am the kind of person that tends to sometimes go a bit overboard. But I think I had a good balance. I think the yoga twice a week. One was on a Wednesday night. One was on a Saturday morning. So it was a really nice balance. I got to get away from doing the parenting on a Wednesday night for the toddler, mm-hmm. and Saturday morning was like my special time for myself. You know, living on the Gold Coast most of the time, the sun would be shining, and off I'd go to yoga and get to hang out with these other lovely mums that were all having babies too, and. And then I didn't start the pelvic floor physio until closer to the end. So I think I had a good balance. And actually what happened, I started getting the prodromal labor at about 38 weeks and it was more like tightenings. Mm. And have you heard people talk about like the lightning cervix, kind of like the shocks? Yeah, I call it the lightning crutch, the old uh, times. It's a fun experience to have. (laughs) Yeah, so I I had that for probably the last two or three weeks. And then I actually went to my public floor physio the morning that the labor started, which is interesting. And, and she laughs now because she said, yep, I knew I could get it started. Mm. <laughs> so I, did you want me to go into how Solomon's birth began, labor and birth began? Yeah, of course. So when you went to your physio on the day that your labor started, did she put her mm-hmm. hands into your vaginal area when potentially your cervix was open? Is that yeah, but I don't, it's not that far up. Like it just feels like it's just inside, like at the very, very okay. You're going to have to have a look at this. I've never heard of it before. I'm very interested. The only thing I can think of, of somebody who talks about this is Kimberly Johnson in her postpartum book. I'm oh, is it the first trim- fourth trimester? Yeah, the fourth trimester. I'm just looking at my bookcase. Mm. Yeah, the fourth trimester. And I'm pretty sure she talks about for women who have never had a vaginal birth, it's like this idea of like you put your fist inside to stretch out and it's a bit different to what you're saying, but you mm-hmm. put your fingers in your hands so that you can imagine a head coming out or something and showing how oh. stretchy it can be. I'm pretty sure that that's what she talks about. So she probably talks about something similar about maybe holding tightly or learning mm. to release or something. I might have to find that in the book and see what she exactly said so nobody quote me on that because I don't exactly yeah know. I don't know really I don't know the science behind it but I know that the mm. public physio she would there must be different you know a group of muscles in that area and she would find the tight ones and she would release it and she could actually feel it release mm. but it's not very far up so I don't think it would be I mean she wears gloves it's all very hygienic so I don't think it, yeah. it's going to affect the cervix and what much. did it feel like for you when she was doing that and then afterwards, like, for an example of, like, a chiropractor, you know, yep. you go there, you can feel them cracking your bones. It's not very mm. painful. You go away, you feel pretty good or you might be in pain for a couple of days. How did that kind of feel for you? I think it was a little bit painful when she was releasing them, but I also remember we. I think we talked about, you know, thinking of your pelvic floor, like, from zero to ten, like, steps and practising going up and down. And so I was able to... The more visits I had, the more I was able to release. So I mm. felt like what she was doing was was working because I felt like I could release my pelvic floor more before than I could more than I could before. Mm. Okay. Mm. So you went to her in the morning or that day, and then later on yeah. things ramped up for you. Yeah. So I just went to bed and I switched out the light, and I think about ten or fifteen minutes later, I felt a contraction, and I went, "That's a proper one," because I'd been having these little ones for a couple of weeks, and exactly five minutes later, another one, and exactly five minutes later, another one. And I thought, I think we're on because I was also over my due date in inverted commas. Mm. So I thought I'd been waiting. And because my labor started with Lily before my due date and before her due date. So with Solomon, I thought it's got to be happening. It's got to be happening any minute now, any minute now. And so, yeah, I thought this is it because it's happening. It's every five minutes. They're stronger than they've been the last two weeks. Got on the phone to the midwife, Bestie. She's like, yeah, I think this is it. She ended up falling asleep, which she tells me now she feels really bad about, but she'd had a really busy week of catching babies. So I totally forgive her for that. And I was <laughs> I was okay. I just kept breathing through them. I just, I laid on my side in bed. I decided to just keep going with that for a while until I felt like things got to a point where I needed my support team. So that was at about, started about 10 and about 2am. I thought, no, I need to wake up my partner. So I woke her up at 2 she was like, oh my goodness, this is pretty, this is happening. And we decided at 3am to call the doula. We did a phone call with her, like a, so she could hear me on the speaker. 
And she, after about an hour, I think she said, I'm coming over. I think I should come over. We, it was really interesting. I thought I would want to be upright, but lying on my side with the pillow between my legs was the best thing for me. So when the doula came, we just practiced the breathing that she taught me. And it's, you know, it's always harder than it sounds when you're practicing it. But I just would take a deep breath at the beginning of each contraction and just try really hard just to not get too overwhelmed and try and ride with it is easier said than done for people that have had a baby before but it's doable my waters broke at 20 past four and then this is when I said we're not going to the hospital are we and it was my choice the doula said we can but it's the, the hospital was 40 minutes away and it's possible that we could have the baby on the side of the road because your waters have broken it's your second baby you've been warming up for weeks it could go quickly she said what do you want to do and I said I'm happy to have the baby at home and I had manifested that because I really was worried about interventions when I got to the hospital. Are they going to put a cannula in? Are they going to put a CTG? Are they going to do all the things they did to me with with Lily? I didn't want any of that and I was really scared that we were going to get there and and all the hard work that I'd done was going to be undone. It sounds like your doula was also pretty comfortable with home birth. Had she attended home births or free births previously? She had and that was something I discussed with her at the very beginning. I said we accidentally, in inverted commas, had the baby at home. Would you be okay with that? And she was. She was okay with that. And, yeah, I think we probably both manifested it. <laughs> mm, wow. So she had said to you, you know, we can stay home if you want to. You said, yep, let's just stay home. So what kind of happened from that point onwards? Yep, so the waters had broken. I was still – so Lily was here. I've got to remember we're at home and we, we don't knowing when this is happening. So my mum was in bed with Lily I don't know if she would will be able to be, you know, one day tell me what she remembers, but I'm sure she had a lot of crazy noises coming from the other bedroom. So we, I just kept going and it, it got to the pushing stage pretty quickly after the waters broke. I was, I had my, I, I was upright at this point, but I was, I had my, I was kneeling on the side of the bed. I had my arms up in kind of like a prayer on the bed and I was just pushing really. I was just trying to get Solomon down to get to the point where he was coming out. Was the pushing um, natural or was that something that you were making happen? Well, it's actually I should have said when the waters broke earlier, it was like my body was half doing it but it was half doing it on its own. It was this weird sensation of like the contraction would start. It was like I couldn't control it but I could also give it a bit of a push as well. So it was a bit of mm. half and half I think. And that's when the waters broke when it, it was I was doing that half kind of half pushing, half What's it called? Is it there's a word for it? It's not, it's not fetal ejection reflex, is it? Well, depending on how long the pushing stage lasted for, my experience with a posterior baby, I was pushing for ten hours every like fourth contraction or something, and my body just took over. And it's where the body's pushing the baby down into position or turning the baby. I don't think that we call it fer, but because mm. you're not ejecting the baby out. But no, that's what I thought. It's doing all the things that need to happen. And for me, mm. it actually felt, I don't know for you, but it actually felt quite good. That was yeah. feeling. Yeah, did it feel good? I agree. You? It did. It felt, I wouldn't say relief, but it felt like some, like I was working towards something, like something yeah. good was happening. Yeah. Like it was doing, my body was doing what it was supposed to do, which was yeah. such an amazing feeling considering how Lily's birth had gone. So how long yeah. did the put that actual stage kind of last before you got to what we would call the FEF, you know? The waters broke and it was an hour and 45 minutes until Solomon was actually born. He did have the cord wrapped around his neck twice. So it wasn't, I don't think I did have the, the fetal ejection reflex. He was a little bit of, it was a bit of a tight squeeze in the end. And the doula actually asked me, she can ask for my consent. She said, I'm, I'm going to have to reach up and try and get this cord untangled yeah. from his neck because I can see that it's, it's actually preventing him from coming out a little bit. What happened in that time frame? So basically baby's coming out and then mm -hmm. so was it like baby's head was coming in and out? Was leading in that last like half an hour? What were you kind of feeling in that it's last It's a bit of a blur, hour? but I think it was like I think she was like he's coming, but it, mm. I think it was, wasn't was maybe happening as quickly as she would have liked it to, knowing how many births she'd seen before. So I was probably doing a little bit more conscious pushing than maybe I needed to or maybe I don't know, but I remember just I got to the point where we had the ring of fire and it was all happening and I was mm. like, I'm ready for this baby to come out. So mm. she was advising me not to do too much hard pushing because it probably wasn't going to help the situation. 
but it was really hard not to because I really wanted him to be born. So after, yep, so she consented to helping me with the with the cord and then he was born. He was a little bit blue, so uh, the doula did very quietly say to my partner, can you please call an ambulance? And she just advised me to rub him, talk to him and cuddle him, and then he was fine. Mm. He was here. Yeah, we did it. <laughs> yeah, you did it and baby came out. So when you were feeling like you just want the baby to come out now, was that because of pain or was that because you were tired or was that just because you, like, I know a lot of us when we go, I for me, I was like, do not push the baby, do not push the baby. And I'm a very impatient person, but I had <laughs> learned that if you push too much, you could tear. So that was mm-hmm. my big thing. For you, was mm-hmm. it just like impatience? Was it pain? Was it a bunch of everything? I what think was, it was I a combination of all of those. Like it was physically so hard. Like my muscles were sore for days. So I think it was just the pure energy of, you know, all of my limbs. And, and I was holding onto the bed really, really tightly because it was like that I needed that gravity. So I think it was just, yeah, I was tired. I was sore. I was impatient. It was painful. I just wanted it. I just wanted to meet him. And I was saying, "Come on, baby, I really want to meet you now." Oh, that mm. makes me emotional as well. <laughs> That's I, beautiful. Though. Know, I couldn't believe I, I actually did it. It was just yeah. Happened. How did you feel after the birth? I was on the biggest high ever. I just the, the feeling is so good. It was just I just laid with him on the bed. We didn't cut the cord straight away. I just couldn't believe I did it. I just. It was the, probably the hardest thing I've ever done, but I and I worked so hard for months and months, actually mm-hmm. probably years, and I did it. I finally I did it, and he was just great. He was happy. He was healthy. I did have a tear though, and so because we had called the ambulance because we were a little bit worried when he first came out. It was sunrise. There was like a an ambulance party and a family party in my house <laughs> because mm. we had one ambulance person officer come on his own because he was yeah. nearby on his own. And then we had, he had to call for backup because it was, you know, potentially it could have been a bad situation with a newborn baby. So then we had another woman and a young a paramedic who just graduated. So we had real button, huge bunch of people. I think mum was making cups of tea for everybody. They had a look at the tear and, and they said it's probably good to go to the hospital and I don't know if you know, you had a home birth, so you do know, so about the whole the birth certificate situation and registering the, the baby and mm-hmm. all of that. So in terms of admin, it was probably also mm-hmm. easier to go to the hospital, get myself stitched up, get the baby checked out, make sure he was okay. And off we went in the in the ambulance and my family followed and I just was on the biggest high in the ambulance, cuddling my baby, having him right there with me while I I just was on a high the whole time I couldn't I just couldn't believe it (laughs) oh congratulations thank you it's just a whole year's passed and it just seems like a lifetime ago have has he had his first birthday he has he had it a couple of weeks ago oh congratulations and happy birthing day to you as well thank you so much thank you for sharing your story with us thank you thanks for having me it's it was really lovely to revisit all of that with you did you have any tips or advice that you would like to share to anyone who's considering a home birth or maybe thinking about manifesting one like you have? <laughs> I think like I cost was a big thing for me. I, I did actually want to have a home birth, but I just wasn't in a position to be able to afford to have two, two private midwives. And I, so I think that's how it ended up that we had our birth with a doula and it ended up being a free birth. And I don't know if, you know, publicly we're supposed to promote that. I did have a little bit of, I don't know, not regret. I felt like, you know, I didn't end up having the midwife there. He'd supported me so much through the whole journey. And I didn't want her to think that I had actually planned it because it it could have gone either way. I do kind of feel a little bit guilty. I accessed public services and then I ended up having a free birth. But I think if our system was a little bit different, then maybe I wouldn't have felt that that was my kind of the way I had to go. You know, I didn't, I couldn't afford to do it, but I really wanted to do it. And with the doula, the way we afforded it was we did a like a payment plan. So I think my advice is, I'm not saying to kind of use the system, but you know, if if a doula is affordable and you can find someone that's really experienced in, you know, supporting you and also in emergencies, because, you know, that sometimes things can, like you said, things can go pear-shaped and Solomon did have the cord wrapped around his neck twice, which you know, it can be normal, but it also might need, you know, medical help. So yeah, I think 
a doula was a great option for me. If I didn't, if I couldn't afford a doula, I probably would have gone for like a student midwife or something like that. I just think accessing those other options is a really great option if you're not wanting to have a baby in a hospital. I also want to share that we shouldn't feel guilty for accessing those because you pretty much save the government money by not having to go in there. You could have been in there for days laboring, going through that, and you chose to have your baby at home. So you kind of save resources in that way. Yes, you did have an ambulance. I was having this conversation with my husband the other day. Mm. I personally have this feeling that, you know, if women are planning more home births, women of, you know, if we've got midwives coming out, we don't have the bed shortages problem. I just saw on the news the other day on the ABC that so many women are missing out on having proper the birth that they want to because they can labor for three, four days and they want to get them into C-sections because that's quicker, that's more manageable. Mm. And then, like you said, there was a shortage of midwives that have done their time on the roster and then that's it. Mm. So then what happens for that woman then? And Mm -hmm. while you had that midwife who's to say she wasn't sick at the time, that she would have been available because your first midwife wasn't available, unfortunately, There are other alternative options, like you've mentioned, which are good options. And Mm -hmm. I think that for me, I couldn't access the kind of prenatal care that I wanted, planning a free bath. I would have Mm -hmm. had to have paid $2,000, I think I was quoted from a private midwife, and I would have to travel to north side of Brisbane. So for me, being pregnant woman, I wanted somebody that was local or somebody who could come to my home. One of the local Mm -hmm. midwives, she was risked herself out for insurance purposes, wasn't able to support me. She felt she was it wasn't safe for her to support Mm. me prenatally. And then what were my other options? I could have gone to hospital and had the same support you had, but it would have been in a public hospital setting. So I wouldn't have had that Mm. support. So women who are planning home births really don't have the choice do they they have the choice of paying for the midwives which I think they're worth the weight in gold if you can afford it everyone can afford those options so Mm. I wish that there was something more I could go to the GP I've got a great relationship with my GP and I said to her if I have a free like another baby I'm free birthing and would Mm -hmm. you support me this time and she said yeah I would but I still would tell you what I think and I said like for me you know, uh, she knows me now enough that I'm not going to do what she says. Like, I'll just be like, yeah, whatever. (laughs) And we've got a good enough relationship. But I'll tell you that relationship's been built up over coming up to nine years. And there's been some times where I've not seen her for a a year or two because she's been really shitty and supporting me in that part of my journey. But she's grown and learned and had children herself, you know. Mm -hmm. So I do appreciate you sharing that part of your journey and add that advice as well with our listeners. Thank you so Thanks much. Thanks for making for me feel time. better about it. Oh, good. <laughs> about, my, about feeling guilty. <laughs> yes, I'm sending you all the love. And because I just don't want anyone to have to feel guilty because we do. We feel guilty all the time mm. about so many things. Not a good enough mum, mm. didn't do this, mm-hmm. I'll be let down. Now we're worried about letting down. As a people pleaser yourself, as a former mm-hmm. people pleaser, I should say, that's <laughs> where those little tendencies come out and get you. Yeah. And if I can just also add, Ashley, there's, you know, I don't know how many like OBs and people in hospitals and policymakers in hospitals listen to this. I think the fact that I was too scared to go to the hospital because I was having a VBAC and I was scared of them intervening is just something I think that we really need to get people to listen to because it's, you know, I was traumatized from Lily's birth and I didn't want to go to a place that should be safe for me to go and have my baby. I would rather risk the chance of not having a medical person at my birth and having my baby at home because of I didn't want to go down that road of, of what are they going to do to me when I get there and it shouldn't be that way. It shouldn't be that way and I suspect there's probably not many people in the hospital system listening to this podcast or <laughs> to actually make a change but I, if you can, everyone invite those people to listen because mm-hmm. I think it's madness. Like if someone said to me and I was working in the system, I don't feel safe. I don't trust you. My priority would be how can I get these women to trust me? Not in a manipulative, not in a coercive, not in a, I had a horrible story that was shared on Reels this morning by Core and Restore. And she shared that overheard, uh, yeah, overheard a obstetrician another obstetrician or a midwife saying she they won't consent to an induction and the obstetrician saying in the tea room 
what was it? Foursome. Oh, tell them. Use the D word. Use the dead baby card. And like to know that that is happening, to think that they are so frightened. Mm. I have to believe that they're so frightened that they use that. Otherwise, they're manipulative bastards sitting Mm. on the other side going, F them, use the dead baby card. I can't lose my job for this or whatever it is that goes Mm. through their mind. But where's the ethic? I said to Mm. my husband last night, how can it be? Because somebody else, I've got a lot of Randy stuff that I want to share, but this advocate, uh, maternity advocates commented on one of my posts about informed consent. I'm saying informed consent's quite, you know, bullshit unless you really know it's like smokes and mirrors, unless you know exactly mm. the words to use. But they should be trained in the system in ethics and integrity to know mm. what the right thing is. You don't say to a rapist, you raped her, but you didn't know, so we'll let you off. We, You didn't know it was a law, so we'll let you off. You would yeah. say it's mm-hmm. your responsibility to know the law. Now, you would think that a body of obstetricians and midwives and people who work in that space, it's their legal responsibility to know what the law is, and apparently the law is that they can't do those things, and yet nobody's holding them accountable for their actions. So the maternity consumer person said, the woman has to do this and the woman has to advocate, but she has to use the language of the law. And that's putting that back on the victim, right? I'm not saying that mm-hmm. we're victims, but why are we holding, and, and rapes are a hard one because, you know, we're not really holding some of those people into accountability, but mm-hmm. why in some situations, you know, are we putting the responsibility back on the person to know the law? Like if you're driving mm-hmm. and you do the wrong thing, they're going to say, well, it's the law, you should keep up with the law. But when it comes to a mass of women being tortured or traumatised or abused or obstetric violence, how is that okay? And how is nobody making a change for that? So I just wanted Mm -hmm. to pop in my ranty because I had seen quite a few little things. Yes, I love a good rant, don't worry. (laughs) And yeah, thank you so much for sharing everything that you have today. I've really enjoyed listening to your story. It's been a new, fresh perspective. And thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you so much, Ashley. It was wonderful to talk to you. Thank you so much for listening to the VBAC Home Birth Stories podcast. I hope this episode has helped you take another step forward in your VBAC home birth journey. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a second to rate and review. Each review helps me get this message out to more women just like us. Want to follow along and get freebies and offerings? Find me on Instagram, Ashley L. Winning, and send me a DM to say hi. And come and join our safe group on Facebook. Just search Feedback Home Birth Support Group. Until next time, keep shining beautiful.